And now would you pray with me? Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. Envelop us in your nurturing words. May those words give us new life. May those words confront us that we will be hearing and ultimately transform us, healing us for our sake and for your glory. Amen. Well, our reading this morning is a familiar one, and as I have to remind myself that God has a living word and speaks to us anew every time we open his holy scriptures, that's the promise that we're given, is if we keep our hearts open, that God will speak anew. So listen to this familiar story. It was always one of my favorites when I was growing up. Um, but it will have even deeper meaning for us as we hear the word and hear the word proclaimed. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone jar, water jars for the Jewish rite of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now, draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called to the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his sons in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.
Well, there is little reason that any of you should remember what I'm about to tell you, but on my first Sunday in this pulpit, which is to say my first Sunday standing here in an empty room talking to myself, I told myself that it is always helpful to pay attention to firsts when they come up in Scripture. The first of anything isn't the only important moment, but Scripture was composed very carefully, very intentionally, so most of the things that happen first communicate deep truth, something to remember as we keep reading. I couldn't help but think of firsts today, since it is our first annual meeting with many of us together in the same room, though I am mindful of and grateful for our online folks. And I do not mean to imply that this meeting will be more defining than others that follow it. I just mean that the last couple of years have made me grateful for moments that might have seemed casual in the past. They all somehow carry deeper importance because we can be together. In our reading today, Jesus is at a wedding in Cana, together with his friends and his mother and crowds of others. Presumably, they are having a wonderful time. It's early in Jesus' ministry. All he has done up to this point in John's gospel is invite a few people to follow him. Based on the glowing recommendation of John the Baptist, who is not easily impressed, Peter and Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel are convinced that Jesus is at least worth checking out. And no sooner have they fallen in line behind him than he promises, you are going to see great things. You will see the heavens opened up and angels coming down. There are great things ahead. Which catches our attention, what great thing are we about to witness? How is Jesus going to change the world and all of us in it? What first will forever define his ministry? Now it is worth reminding all of us that John's gospel never uses the word miracle. John uses sign to describe the same type of event because the way that John understands those moments, well, they're not actually about Jesus. They're about God. Jesus is always pointing to God with these signs. And so what is in surely one of his most important moments is his, in his entire ministry it is his first opportunity to point us to God. And what does Jesus do? He restocks the bar. <laughs> now, I am in favor of this activity, but it does seem odd as an inaugural event. Think about all the other signs in this gospel. He walks on water. He heals people countless times. He feeds more than 5,000 people with a child's afternoon snack. He raises Lazarus from the dead, for heaven's sake. That is the kind of greatness we're expecting from the beginning. But Jesus rarely gives us what we are expecting. 
And what we get is six stone water jars. His mother tells the servers to do whatever he tells you. And Jesus looks around to see what he has to work with. And, well, all he sees are those six jars. And by the way, that's an odd little detail that gets slid into this story. It's specific. But biblically speaking, six is a bummer of a number. Now, seven is good. Seven would be useful because seven is actually perfect. How many days are in the creation story? Seven. How many days for Noah to load up the ark? Seven. How many times are we to forgive? Seventy times seven. How many signs are in this gospel as a whole? How many churches are mentioned in Revelation? Seven. So how many jars would make this story perfect? Seven. Unfortunately, he only has six. And six is one short. Even I can do that math. It is incomplete. It is imperfect. It is close, but not quite. It's making the JV team when you had your heart set on varsity. It's the marriage that is intact, but missing something. It's the job that puts food on the table, but doesn't feed your soul. Six is not what we expect after Jesus says, you are going to see great things. It's not what we expect, but it is honest. Because life is full of six-jar situations. We are full of six-jar situations. Think about it. We live in a world where racism still runs rampant. We live in a world where guns find their way into schools far too often. A world where too many people go to bed hungry or without a roof above their heads. A pandemic has taken the lives of more than five and a half million people worldwide. Political divides are pulling at the once tightly knit seams of this country. Relationships of all kinds struggle and crumble. We are overworked and exhausted or underworked and anxious. And every time parents think they're going to make it through the week, there's another classroom quarantine or daycare shutdown and every plan they ever had goes out the window. So maybe some of us resonate most closely with Mary's words before we even get to the jars at all. She actually has the first words in this story. They have no wine. Now wine in biblical times, well it was wine, but it was so much more than that. Wine was a sign of life of endurance, of abundance, of strength, of going on. And Mary looks at the people gathered around and realizes they have run out. There is nothing left. I wonder if you've ever felt that way or if you even feel like that today. On days when it all seems 
like there is just not enough. When it seems like there is nothing left, not enough volunteers, not enough childcare, no more energy, not enough time, no more patience, not enough people, whatever it is, whatever it feels like when there is no wine, remember this story. Remember what comes next. Jesus takes those six stone jars and floods the party with an absurd amount of wine. We're back to math again, but if you do that math, it's the equivalent of 180 gallons of wine, and it is the finest wine the servers have ever tasted. It is wine so abundant and so delicious that the wedding celebration, well, it is not going to slow down anytime soon. Jesus takes what's available, what is presented, and makes the best of it. He actually makes a miracle of it. This is what you have to offer, he says. Okay, I can work with this. And it was then, the gospel tells us, that Jesus reveals his glory. In taking our well-intended but incomplete, imperfect offerings of ourselves and transforming them into overwhelming goodness. That is how Jesus says, this is what I am all about. This is who I am. This is what you can count on. This is what I can do. So if you are waiting for the perfect moment, when the time is right, when the stars align, if you are waiting for greatness, if you are counting over and over again and still coming up with only six in any area of your life, remember this story. The other day, a friend reminded me of a book, Good to Great, by Jim Collins. I was slightly horrified to discover it is more than 20 years old now. The goal of the book is to help people and businesses break through barriers and become their best selves. And this is the opening line. Good is the enemy of great. His basic argument is that if we are content to settle for good, we'll never achieve anything great. He may be right, but I think the reverse has got to be true too. Because if I understand this gospel story at all, it's telling us don't let great be the enemy of good. Don't let the quest for perfection stand in the way of overflowing joy. Don't let your doubts about God prevent you from living your faith. Don't let personal inconvenience become more important than communal well-being. Don't let your nerves about saying the wrong thing keep you from reaching out to an aching neighbor. Don't let the voice in the back of your head keep you from canceling a plan and taking a holy nap. Don't let a messy house or a full calendar keep you from opening your doors and your hearts 
with unreserved hospitality. Don't let the impossible ideal get in the way of acceptable action. Don't let great become the enemy of the good news. Hurricane Katrina hit in 2005. I'm sure you remember, and I'm sure the outpouring of mission effort from this church was tremendously faithful. I'm sure of this because I know you. I also know a story from Kansas City. It wasn't long after the hurricane hit that my colleague Tom received a phone call. He was asked if busloads of evacuees could be brought to Prairie Village, if Village Church could take on the responsibility of coordinating the effort when they arrived. Well, let me see, Tom said. Let me get the session together and see what we can do. And the voice on the other end of the phone said, Tom, we are on the bus. The key is in the ignition. If you say yes, we're on the way before you hang up. And so 15 hours later, the first bus pulled into the parking lot. Now, if you talk to anyone who was at Village at that time, they will tell you it was unquestionably the right thing to do. And they will tell you it was sheer chaos. And they will tell you that most of the things they actually did ended up being the wrong things. Classrooms were filled floor to ceiling with supplies, all of it given in earnest, only fractions of which were actually usable. For every answer they came up with, two more answers were, we don't know. The building was overwhelmed with members and neighbors who all said, yes, strangers can come and stay in my home. But there was no record kept of who went where we tried, but it was woefully incomplete. And yet, many of the evacuees eventually returned to New Orleans, or they started a new life in a new place. Some of them stayed in Kansas City. A few of them still attend Village. I remember talking with one of the gentlemen. His name was Joseph, and he said it was horrible. It was frightening. We had to leave our home. It was the very worst day ever. And then he paused and he said, well, what this church did, well, that was good. That was very good. A parking lot, unused classrooms, imperfect systems, incomplete records, inappropriate supplies. Or maybe a pandemic, a city in the south, a church in the capital, a day in February, or really any other day filled with people who might not be too full up themselves. These are just some of the places and some of the circumstances where miracles are being born in some of the most unpredictable, unpolished, unlikely moments, God's glory is breaking through.
I don't know what tomorrow looks like. It might be our proudest day yet. It might be a six-jar sort of mess. I don't know. But I can promise you this. I can promise you that God will be there. Because God does not wait for the perfect moment. God just shows up in grace and in glory no matter what. And floods our lives with hope and presence and love. God floods all of our lives with good, good news. That is both the first and ultimately the final word of the gospel. And I don't know about you, but I will drink to that. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.